Hi, welcome to Innovative Leadership, Co-Creating Our Future. I'm your host, Maureen Metcalf. I'm the founder and CEO of the Innovative Leadership Institute and a fellow with the International Leadership Association. This podcast is part of a series hosted in conjunction with the International Leadership Association as part of their 2020 Global Leadership Conference, focusing on leading at the edge. At the Innovative Leadership Institute, we help leaders elevate the quality of their leadership and co-create the thriving future they seek. We assist them in navigating the disruptive trends they're facing, developing strategies to elevate themselves and their organizations to continually meet the challenges they face. I'm a regular contributor to Forbes and the lead author on an award-winning book series focusing on innovating how you lead and transforming your organization. Thank you for joining us today. I hope you enjoy the content. So with me on the show today is Dr. Neil Grunberg. I am so excited, Neil, for you to be joining the conversation. Thank you. Neil is a professor of military and emergency medicine, medical and clinical psychology, and neuroscience in the Uniformed Services University School of Medicine in Bethesda, Maryland. He's also a professor in the Graduate School of Nursing, Director of Research and Development in the USU Leadership Education and Development Program, and the Director of Faculty Development for Military and Emergency Medicine. Neil is a medical and social psychologist who's been on faculty at USU since 1979. Dr. Brunberg trains physicians, psychologists, and nurses to serve in the armed forces and public service, and scientists for research positions. He's published over 200 papers addressing behavioral medicine, stress, and leadership. He is also, I'm delighted to announce, the co-author for our upcoming book, Innovative Leadership for Healthcare. And as a book written during the pandemic, we were really trying to address the challenges that healthcare providers face during this incredibly challenging time. So I am delighted to share the conversation with Neil. So universities and medical schools do a wonderful job preparing their students for medical procedures, but often miss crucial elements of great healthcare leadership in these training programs. And that's where Neil has a profound level of expertise. So today, Neil joins the show to share his experience and how he believes the leadership framework that he developed and then the combination of the frameworks that we have co-developed build leadership skills needed for medical staff to make their healthcare system stronger. I also want to say that the opinions expressed during this show reflect Neil's thoughts and not the Uniformed Services University or the Department of Defense. So Neil, welcome and thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. So let's start with telling our listeners a little bit about you so that they understand the perspective you bring. Because as I read your bio, it almost sounds made up like no one can do all of this. So give us a little bit more about you. That, that's too kind. But perhaps most relevant to our discussion is I was brought up in a healthcare family. My father was a leading medical researcher, my mother a nurse, my brother a physician. And so I started with an educational background. I attended Stanford University in California, originally beginning as a pre-medical student myself, but I got more and more interested in research, studying actually medical microbiology, clearly relevant to the pandemic issues today and genetics. But I also missed 
understanding of people. So at Stanford, I also worked in the Stanford Hypnotic Research Laboratory. So I did everything from microbial research to hypnosis research. With the guidance of my mentors at Stanford, I went on to Columbia University in New York City. And there I earned PhDs in both physiological psychology, that's the biological basis of how we act, think, and why we're motivated and emotions. But I also did and earned a PhD in social psychology, the study of psychology related to groups. In addition, I earned graduate studies in pharmacology because I was particularly interested in the time in drug abuse. So I brought a biopsychosocial perspective to why do people use drugs, whether they were recreational and dangerous drugs, and then to other healthcare, stress, and the like. That's how it started in terms of my perspective, feeling that I had a responsibility and the privilege of trying to contribute as best I can to the well-being of people, both through research and topics related to health and behavior, as well as its practice. Now, that ends up combining in a funny way more recently with my interest in leadership. So that was a funny twist, is that I, when I, like others, was studying medical issues and research, the focus for decades and decades has been on the individual growth of our own knowledge. But at Columbia University, I studied with a very famous social psychologist, Professor Stanley Schachter. And although I joined his lab when we were studying drug abuse, cigarette smoking, stress and topics, Professor Schachter had studied with Professor Kurt Lewin. Lewin, right after World War II, had actually been the first experimental social psychologist to rigorously study leadership. It was Lewin and his students in the late 1930s and 40s, post-World War II, who recognized and identified three kinds of leadership, what's considered the classic types, authoritarian, democratic, and laissez-faire. I mentioned this because I was steeped in that background, being a student of Schachter, who was a student of, of Lewin, and I spent decades studying and teaching social psychology at the graduate and, and advanced level. But over the years, I also realized how important leadership was in influencing others. Through my work on drug use and abuse, ranging from cigarette smoking, to hard drugs was the influence of people on each other, the influence of advertising, the influence of education. And that got me increasingly interested in how do the topics fit together? And, and how does leadership, perhaps most simply put as influence of some individual or people on others, how does it influence behaviors, positive and negative? That's starting to come together. And then I was asked to integrate this in my work at my university and integrate all these things together. Because what's really changed in the last 20 years is healthcare is now, as we call it, a team sport. Healthcare of my childhood, I'm in my mid 60s now, was Oftentimes, the individual knowledgeable physician often coming to your home. But as medicine changed, and we are aware that healthcare involved all sorts of medical specialties, nursing, psychology, dentistry, 
social work, the clergy, counseling, physical therapists, occupational therapists, and of course, we as patients ourselves and our significant others, we had to change our whole approach. So that's why I started integrating my background in social psychology, my interest in medical treatment and medical research to develop our concepts of leadership in healthcare. And then of course, Maureen tried to merge it with the approach that you and your colleagues brought. So one, I just deeply appreciate your educational background and how you as a person were able to synthesize all of these crucially important facets of understanding the human being, understanding a human system, and then bringing that to healthcare. Because as you say, you know, I look at how my mom relates to medicine, doctor is expert, tell me what to do. I am the recipient. And consequently, my mom doesn't, and who's now in her 80s and has dementia. But until that point, she was dutiful in following the rules, but she didn't have a sense of owning her own health. She was the recipient of an expert guiding her or just telling her what to do. And moving now into a whole different approach even to to wellness and health, where the patient has to be responsible for their health, certainly with the guidance of physicians, nurses, NPs, clergy. It is a systemic approach. And yet that shift is incredibly significant as your work has looked at building out the systems around the patient and even probably the definition of the patient and what is their responsibility versus yours. So you've really shepherded in and continue to a, a, a paradigm shift in what does healthcare look like for each um, stance within in the healthcare system? Well, thank you. You're very generous to, to include, to credit me with some of it, but certainly there has been a shift to a patient care, a patient-centered care, as you're saying. But the patient also includes not only the patient as a member of the healthcare team, the way I like to think of it, but it also reminds me when we tried to merge healthcare and concepts and leadership is the evolution of the understanding of leadership. And what I'm thinking of in particular in response to your comments just now, Maureen, is what's been called the leadership attribution error. The leadership attribution error holds that too much credit and too much blame is given to the designated leader. Whereas the followers, meaning the team members, the people who actually make whatever happens towards a goal, have much more influence and power than we realize. Certainly leaders are still visionary. They are aspirational with an idea. They are inspirational and they should remove barriers and provide resources for the team or the individuals. But when we put it in healthcare, in addition to this shift often can be attributed to the changes in technology. Now, when we deal with our physician, and a year ago I would have said, walk into our physician's office, but now Zoom or some other platform and, and, and do telehealth with our physician, we have to remember that each patient largely is carrying one of these remarkable computers and access a cell phone of some sort, perhaps in their pocket or purse, where the patient has enormous access to medical information. As a result, the healthcare provider 
And I use that because now the partnership among physicians, nurses, and all the other professionals are, are of paramount importance, need to integrate, apply, and provide judgment and guidance to an informed patient, whether informed or misinformed, depending on the information. But it really changes the dynamic from that, that patronizing, paternalistic, directive way. But in the same way, education has changed. When I was growing up, and even when I was in college and even grad school, we expected the professor to, the word was, read a lecture, actually write it out, read to us, as we all took notes. That then changed to more question and answering, but now it's moved to what's been called flipped classrooms and other ways of experiential learning because the information is so readily available. Medicine's the same way. The health professional leads that team, but the team includes the patient and all the other workers. And today's healthcare professionals must understand, must understand the responsibility and their authority, but really that they should be orchestrating a team. And sometimes the leader becomes a follower, meaning they listen as well. So I think you brought up several things that I want to touch on, and I just want to talk about technology for a second and then set it aside. As a patient, and you bring up the cell phone, I own or we share a vast amount of data just because of the watch I'm wearing. So all kinds of data is available through a portal to my healthcare team. If I'm a critical care patient, which I am fortunately not, there is a way of monitoring my glucose level, my blood, my, my heart, so that the team, again, takes a very different role. I don't wait till I'm in crisis, but I am in collaboration. And what strikes me as evolving is our willingness as both the healthcare team, hospital-related, and the, the patient team, and how we are going to be willing to accept the use of technology to augment our outcomes, hopefully much more positive outcomes. And yet I was in a conversation not too long ago about how AI may be able to read a, a film better than a human person can, even a very experienced one. And yet does the doc call the patient and say, hey, the AI just gave me a report and you're in trouble? Or how does that conversation go? So it seems like we're talking about leader follower and technology enabled in all of those cases, which again, for this conversation points to the acceleration of change and how as a leader and a follower and a team member, I am pivoting roles much more quickly and more often. Well, I, I really like, particularly that last point you made, I want to emphasize to embrace and understand that we're a member of a team, often in leadership, depending on your role, but also willing to listen or receive via follower. And you've, you've introduced that AI or artificial intelligence technology becomes a member of the team. Absolutely true. There's another point. It's interesting that each of the examples that you just spelled out for the listeners, which is absolutely accurate, were of course biological measures. As I mentioned, my perspective is a biopsychosocial. So the other thing that this vast technological development 
that allows, the integration information allows, is the inclusion and consideration of relevant biological markers, as you mentioned many, blood work and the like, but also psychological, and by psychological, not to be confused with psychiatric. Psychiatric, of course, especially of medicine, focusing on mental health disorders and, and the like. Psychology, broader behavior, what we do. Cognition, what we believe and think. And motivation and emotions, why we act and think as we do. All of our behaviors, our sleep, our nutrition, our exercise, as well as, of course, our stress levels, our emotion, anxiety, depression, etc. But there's the other, the social level, that the artificial intelligence is allowing integration. And this is very exciting. And this is now a phrase that's been referred to as social determinants of health, our zip code, our socioeconomic status, our access to healthy foods and stores, and all of these other, our access to transportation, to computers. So this integration of biological, psychological, social information, we need the assistance, or I'll say partnership with technology, where the healthcare providers will need to understand and use that either artificial intelligence or these algorithms. This is another, as you say, Mark, change. Many healthcare providers, perhaps my age or in their 60s and older, may have a disregard or a concern about the role of technology jumping in. On the other hand, people perhaps under 40 or the like may have an over-reliance. We all have to understand this balance, which again is this new understanding of what is a team, how does it relate to medicine, healthcare, wellness? When are we leaders influencing? When are we followers to receive information? One thing that I really love is when we think about communication, sending and receiving, I heard from a colleague who's a professor of communication science, put it well. The real key to someone who listens well is hidden in the word listen. Because if you rearrange the letters of the word listen, L-I-S-T-E-N, it guides you on how to deeply listen because it spells the word silent, S-I-L-E-N-T. We all need to know when to be silent, to receive, when to integrate, when to apply, when to share information, and then how to move forward together. I had not heard the silent acronym. And again, as you are bringing into the conversation the nuance and complexity of all of the stakeholders, how, how this is changing, and that on any day as a physician or a nurse or an NP or a technician in a lab, you may be dealing with someone who's 80 and someone who's 20. And those two people, and I'm talking archetypally, the 80-year-old most likely has a different view of the role of the healthcare provider. And they probably need a lot more care than the 20-year-old who, who for this conversation, we'll say is relatively healthy. So what you do as a physician has to be incredibly responsive now, where 50 years ago, the doc was the doc, and I'm assuming not as much or as nuanced response. I, I trust that doctors even 50 years ago responded quite deftly or adeptly to patient needs. 
for our listeners, I encourage you to think about where do you fall in the healthcare continuum and what are you asking for from your healthcare provider, healthcare team? How do you use artificial intelligence and technology as you interact with the medical system? You are with Neil Grunberg and Maureen Metcalf. And Neil, can you share with our listeners the 4C PETO model? And I realize this model is the result of decades of research and work. So as I throw it out and we talk about a model, I want to ground in the fact that this has been tested and applied significantly across. You've written over 200 papers. So this is not some new thing that you just made up, but based on in-depth research of teams of people. Well, thanks, Maureen. As I mentioned, I've been, I've been studying topics related to leadership power teams for quite a while. My work had focused on stress and drug abuse, as well as social psychological principles related to health. But it was actually only over the last oh, six or seven years that I turned my attention to focus mostly, if not entirely, on the question of leadership and healthcare. With that, I started to explore what are the different conceptualizations or ways to think about leadership to understand its approach. There I partnered with Dr. Charles Chuck Callahan, who was then a pediatrician in the US Army. Chuck and I met through through other colleagues and, and other activities, and we each brought a different perspective. Dr. Callahan had years of perspective of military medical leadership. I had come at it from the civilian world. We were looking for commonalities. We spent probably a year and a half literally reading everything we could possibly find, looking for what we thought would be the best ideal model. And not surprisingly, we found a lot of good things in a lot of different frameworks, a lot of writing in the extensive extant academic literature, as as well as what was being taught at the various military service academies, Army, Navy, Air Force, Coast Guard. From that, one day we decided and said, you know what? Why don't we take the best of each? As we selected from decades and decades of research and, and concept, we started to realize there was an elegant way of putting it together, intended to be a guide for the development of the individual leader. We later realized it's also development of a follower. We originally called it, as you said, the 4C PEDO model, because it was four C elements, F-O-U-R-C-E, across four psychosocial levels. As we've developed it over the last two years, we now often refer to it as the leader follower framework, which I'll explain in a moment. But the four C's, our character, competence, context, and communication. Character, who are we? Competence, what do we do? Context, when and where do we do it? Communication, how do we do it? Now, character, we also realize should be broader than has often been thought of. Character includes moral compass, one's values, with belief systems and the like. But we realize that in the literature and in experience, how we lead 
how others react to leaders, ourselves, or how we react to other leaders is more than their moral compass. It in fact includes their demographics. Are they male or female? Are they old or young? What's their race, their ethnicity, their height, their weight, their appearance, their personality? So to us, character is everything about the individual. Competence, what we do, we also realize could be split into two roles. Role-specific competencies. My competence as an educator, a scientist. One's competence as an attorney, a plumber, an electrician, a mechanic, a school teacher, a parent, on and on. There's role-specific competence one must have to have the respect and be able to lead. There are also transcendent leadership competencies that cross-cut all, all of these different professions and roles. What are they? Critical thinking decision-making, problem-solving, most importantly, emotional intelligence and conflict resolution. Context, this is affected from my background from Professor Schachter and Lewin. Context can be physical, night or day, hot or cold, whatever, where we are doing whatever activity, but it's also psychological. Where is our psychological context? What is my mood? Where am I vis-a-vis -vis my goals in life, my expectations, social context, cultural context, as well as that situational context. Am I in a calm situation or under stress? That affects things. Communication is a competence in many models of leadership, but it's so important the how we pulled it out as the fourth C and defined it in ways people don't always think of. It is certainly sending information, but it's sending and receiving verbally and non-verbally. Then we crossed it with what was called pedo, and that's the four psychosocial levels. We need to understand, guide, assess, develop ourselves and others at the personal level, P. But then there's the interpersonal, but one-on-one, -on -one, the dyad, how we interact with one other person what is our competence? How are we, how is our character viewed in terms of our, for example, our self-awareness internally? How do we view ourselves? And are we aware how the other person views us? Is there a power differential or the like? Then there's a much more complex level, psychosocial level of team, the interaction and group dynamic. And then O is the organizational or systems or cultural level. As we say, we originally called it the 4C pedo to describe these eight elements, but we now refer to it as leader follower framework because we realize with the importance of team members, follower is not a, a, a negative term or a passive role. It's a critical member of the team. We need to develop so that we are effective leaders, effective followers. And as you mentioned before, that we know how to change and transition in these roles, depending on the situation. So that's the essence. And of course, we've used this to, to educate our students. Others around the country are now using it to educate medical students, physicians, psychologists, other health nurses, health practitioners. And that we're hoping that we've integrated, of course, with your in, innovative leadership framework, because we're, we focus on how the individual develops in these roles 
your approach, which of course I had read about and was why we partnered, I was so impressed with, takes us through that growth, particularly through developmental maturity, as well as the different levels of actual action as a leader. Beautiful. Thank you for teeing that up. And every time I hear you talk about the leader follower framework, and I like 4CPDO because that reminds me what the levels are. As an example, if someone's listening to this who is a physician but not running a team, or they work in a team but they're not running an organization, the personal, all of us lead self whether or not I have a team, whether or not even I'm a physician, because Neil's model holds true while he happens to work in healthcare. This model happens to be a brilliant model that can be applied in technology or the financial sector. We, again, we're talking about it here in the context of healthcare. So if I am a new leader, the idea of context, competence, and communication are incredibly relevant. As a younger leader, I will do more following and less leading. If I am in a senior role, I may be doing more leading. But again, to Neil's point, no matter where I sit on the org chart, including at a board level, if I'm on a board and I'm the chair, I may still be a member of a committee that I don't run. We're watching in in our political system checks and balances, again, across branches, no matter who I am, including the president of the United States or in other countries, a prime minister, I'm still part of a team of people governing a country. For most of us, we're working in organizations or nonprofits or civil service, military. We're all both leading and following at any given point and having the, the grace to know when to step forward and take a leadership role and when to step back and allow someone who is best in this context at this moment to take the leadership role really does speak to characteristics like humility. So this gets into the innovative leadership model that there are characteristics that good leaders demonstrate. And I'm going to read off a quick list and I, I realize this is not the optimal approach. But using this example, a really competent leader doesn't need to be in front of the room at every moment. They're comfortable saying, okay, Neil, you you take this one. This is your expertise. I'll take this other one. Unwavering commitment to right action. As we are seeing so many changes in healthcare and across how all of us do business, this idea that I am committed to right the best possible outcome for all of the stakeholders means at times I'm going to have to admit that I'm uncomfortable. I don't know the answer. The approach we took has proven itself to be suboptimal relative to other new emerging approaches. So this idea that again, as a leader and a follower, it's about what I do. And as Neil pointed out, character, it's about that what I believe, what motivates me, what goes on inside of me allows me to function well as the person my followers see. They may not see my motivations. They also hopefully don't see my fears. So what they see is how I behave. And on the emotional intelligence level, they feel, experience me 
as a whole person. So if I come in often overwhelmed and befuddled by what's happening in the world, people will experience that in me as well. So again, the interconnection of the models really helps us get to some of the core motivations and values that I as a leader hold because we believe that certain values like committing to the greater good makes a better leader than committing to my own personal aggrandizement as my biggest goal in in life. And that connects to this idea of developmental maturity that over time, if we are focusing on it, so it isn't a function of age necessarily, although years on the planet feed into it, that for people focusing on building a level of maturity do move into this set of beliefs and values and motivation that are looking at more than self, but at the greater good. And the process we use in the leader development book helps people walk through a series of steps. So the thing I like about this is the combination of Neil's brilliant model, our model. But if you read this, you can walk away with a good understanding of models. And I think that's a start. But that's not what makes good leaders. Good leaders understand themselves and they behave in a way that is effective in their context. So our goal was to create not only the models, but the process that helps anyone interested in building their leadership. If you follow this process and we have case studies, one of a physician and one of an MP, both in leadership roles who are building their leadership. So you get to see their inner process. In the case studies, they're actually answering reflection questions. What are my values? So our gentleman, Lewis, case study talks about being a parent of young children and how does that drive his motivation as a human being who happens to be working as a physician. Susanna does not have children. She's in the process of navigating end-of-life parent issues. How does she show up as a person? Because the context of our lives also impact how we lead and how we follow. So the thing I like most about this is even if you could never recite what 4CPDO means or what the innovative leadership framework is, if you follow the process, you get better. And better means to me that you will be more effective in your leadership role as a healthcare leader, which means every stakeholder in your system gets a better outcome. So that felt way too much like a monologue. Neil, let's jump back in. What about this book was to you most appealing? And for our listeners, how does that translate to if you do this, you become a better leader? Now, that was a, that's a very good point you raised. And I think it's for the listeners, Maureen, you did explain some critical issues. But in response to your question, how do they fit together? Well, as you know, and I'll share with the listeners, as I continue to be a lifelong learner, always looking and reading, and I met you and then heard you speak and then started reading actually most, if not all of your books, <laughs> I was really struck and impressed by the innovative leadership approach. And then I realized that 
you and your colleagues who had developed that approach were dealing with another essential part of the development of the leader, which was different from what I and my colleagues were doing. So where our explanation of elements to use to assess self and others in education development would be, we hope value both in your role as leader and follower, your model really talked about applying that leadership in critical situations and particularly through the career development or role development, which really impressed me. Basically, the innovative leadership approach really brings context in even a broader sense over time, over role. So what I'm most pleased about, about our collaboration, and I hope the readers will find it equally valuable, is that the 4C PETO or Leadership Fellowship Framework tells you how to assess and keep track of how to grow myself and be aware, the innovative leadership says, okay, now let me go through my stages of professional roles when I am more of a follower, when I'm in charge of a couple of things, as I move perhaps to a small group, to a department, to a division, and someday perhaps to an organization, that's completely from your side and your colleagues have brought together. When I've looked at it and had various colleagues read the draft of the book, that's what they said is that together we, we've created not only something bringing two pieces of information, but we've actually created a gestalt, you know, where the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. And I think about gestalts both because that's the approach in psychology I was raised, again, biological, psychological, social, are not separate stovepipes, but are information to make one greater. But it also is because I was raised as a musician. I've been a musician since I was literally five years old and may be relevant to the listeners to understand how that affects me as I'm, I'm a drummer. And I started playing seriously when I was a child and what a teenager, I did professional gigs and others. But I mentioned this because I learned individual musicians certainly can sing or play an instrument or the like, but especially as a drummer, although I could solo, I needed the group, I needed the ensemble, whether it was a jazz ensemble, a rock band, a symphony orchestra, a concert band, a marching band, and I've played in them all, is together the members of different musical groups to me is how I think of healthcare. Healthcare team are the members of that ensemble. Some need to lead and have their voice while the others are quiet, or we provide supplement or background. But just like a great musical ensemble or a great chorus, the sound, the, the, the artistry, the production of the ensemble is oftentimes greater than we even imagine the individual parts. And that's what I see is, is your innovative leadership model with our leadership follower framework together. We hope is that beautiful music or, or the ensemble or the gestalt that will be of great value for individuals to grow as healthcare leaders, as well as to grow other healthcare leaders, subordinates, peers, even people to whom they report, and perhaps to the other interested reader to understand they also, the patient is a member of the healthcare team. The patient also may find our new book interesting as well. Yeah, interesting. And I think you and I have talked about this. We were both drummers, but 
at very different levels. So you played semi-professionally. I performed with a woman's drumming group and I had very little talent <laughs> as a very Caucasian woman. I didn't grow up with parents who played music. Uh, I was not playing at five. This was something that my doctor recommended actually to help navigate my stress. Performing music when one has no skills is not stress reduction, by the way. And yet we had in some ways a similar experience in that I knew I was the beginner in the group. And so I was always the follower. I never had the leading role because I wasn't good enough. And this is interesting for people who are, especially in really accomplished leadership roles, to also take opportunities in life to be a beginner, to keep that part of our brains active so that I'm fresh and open to learning, even though I am incredibly accomplished someplace else. I can tell you in the African drumming circle, I was the one who got, quote, special attention because I was always offbeat. So how do we as leaders stay fresh and, and young in our keeping our brains fresh and open to new learning and building new neural pathways and the humility that goes with no matter how accomplished I am, as the world is changing, I'm willing to step into something that I think is important and new that I'm going to be the, the newbie doing. Yeah. That, I mean, your point's so well taken. And I, as you say it, I was thinking we're all newbies when it comes to new diseases. So, for example, with the horrors of the, of the COVID-19 you know, and the coronavirus that we've, that, you know, the pandemic that's been experienced, we're all new. My colleagues who are infectious disease, microbiologists, specialists, we're dealing with new concepts, new ways to approach it. And I just mentioned that because I like the way you brought out, we need to know that we need to keep learning. And just because we're in a leadership position doesn't mean we're in charge and have nothing more to learn. It means we have new opportunities, new challenges, new things to learn. We also need to re-examine who we are, how we appear to others. When I look in the mirror, oh my God, I'm decades older than I think I am in my mind. But I also, kidding aside on that, not that that's kidding, but I have to realize how do my students, how do patients with whom I consult, how do colleagues see me in that first impression and take that into account. But when I do that, as you say, maintain the sincere humility to know what I know and to know what I don't know. So whether it's a new disease, a new issue, a new communication, a new technology, we need to keep learning and growing and re-examining ourselves. And we hope that, again, our approach both to healthcare together and perhaps as you've, you've suggested, we hope that our combined approaches now as, as we've begun to discuss may be helpful to develop leaders and followers in other settings, government, education, and other roles in life, as well as we explore and we get reactions to our merged models. Neil, I thank you so much for this conversation. We've obviously had hundreds of hours of conversations at this point. So thank you for sharing this one publicly to our listeners, I hope that this 
conversation sparks your interest in our work, where we are incredibly proud of our contribution to helping leaders be more effective during a time where it's required. And we hope that this work is in service of helping people who are dedicating their lives to fighting this pandemic, making their jobs easier because we are all impacted by your work and all of you have worked tirelessly to keep our global community safe. So this is our contribution to say thank you. Neil, where would people find your work? Well, other than everywhere. One can Google my name and find it or a website which lists all of our recent publications and the like is www.usuhs.edu slash USU lead. That is U-S-U-L-E-A-D. But Google me my name or the like. They can find proud that we've now published 25 papers on leadership alone, our book together, with all different aspects, how to build teams, how to communicate effectively, and importantly, how to identify and cope with poor leaders, specifically bad, ineffective, and toxic leaders, is one of our newest papers, as well as a new work we have on how to build trust in relationships in healthcare, relationships in general. But again, we hope that the, that the listeners enjoy this. And again, Maureen, I want to personally thank you both for inviting me to participate and, and your partnership on this new book. And I hope we're going to be able to do several more articles and perhaps several more books together over the years to come. Thank you. Thank you, Neil. And to our listeners, thank you for joining us. We hope that you find this useful and that you are able to put into practice something you heard from Neela or I, either in concrete action immediately and or something that sparked your interest that you'll chew on and update the way you think about yourself as a leader and a follower. Please join us again and also like us on iTunes or whatever distribution channel you listen to us through.